Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Educated economist. Uh, I started my channel in November of 2017. Really, I didn't know what I was going to do with the channel except for the day that I put out some information talking about the housing market and related it to the building industry or the building supply industry. And man, my channel really started taking off after that. So really, that's where my kind of, I guess my profession really has led me is that I have a pretty good insight into the lumber industry and the things that are happening there. And, you know, corresponding that into what's going on now with the housing industry has been a pretty unique for my, for my channel. Nice niche. That's kind of my thing. So, yeah, George, put some color on this. We all talk about the cost of components, but you're there like in the field. Yeah, that's right. I'm like boots on the ground. So, where, you know, George kind of relates it as a 30,000 view looking down, I'm really on the ground looking up. And so, it gives me a different kind of perspective going into this industry. Yeah, but what's really unique about Simon is he understands macro very, very well. So, he can take what he's seeing on the ground in a lumber yard with all these input costs that Kenny has. You know, when Kenny's spending $200 million in, in development, well, these are all input costs that Simon sees in the trenches. And I've heard from Ramon, but you even do a lot of the ordering. So when you look at these supply chain issues with lumber, as an example, he understands this to an incredible degree. He knows what's going on with the, the uh, you know, cutting down the trees in Canada and how that's moving over to the United States and what the price of diesel is doing to how, you know, those trees get cut and then come down to actually your lumber yard or your Home Depot. I mean, it's at an incredible level. And in fact, I'll tell you a, a quick little secret here. A lot of the hedge fund managers uh, that I talk to behind the scenes, guys running billions of dollars, uh, they'll talk about real estate. I'll be like, you know what, you should... Check out this guy's channel, he's a buddy of mine, called The Uneducated Economist, because you really get some incredible insights. And almost every single one of them says, oh no, no, I already follow that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so this panel discussion, I, I wanted to take the opportunity for, uh, Kenny, I'm sure you got a ton of questions for uh, Simon on, on what he sees coming through the pipeline as far as these input costs for real estate. And then just maybe kind of riff on that so the audience can try to maybe have a better idea of the probabilities in their own mind as to whether or not we're going to see prices go up or down in nominal terms over the next year or so. Yeah, well, actually, that's exactly the question I have. You know, we're, I, I know things are commodity, right? So we see things up and down. And lumber's actually normalized a little bit. But for us, we're seeing 10 to 20%, even 30% on some issue, on some item for our components. And, you know, because we're in the middle of construction on some of our projects, as you guys can imagine, these are not small numbers. So these are three, four, five million dollar boxes, right? So on a construction multifamily project, you know, maybe that's um, a year and a half, uh, you know, these things are, uh, these things are real. So at the end, the beginning, the lender lends on what they thought the budget was. At the end, the lender still lends on what the budget was. 
So that's the issue, right? So what are you seeing um, in that regard? Because we have a lot of stuff that's in the works. Yeah, so you're talking about maybe like the completion of homes, like yeah. the, how that's extending out ever further and getting more difficult. I mean, probably the cost of lumber. I'm sure that's one of your biggest input costs. Yeah, for sure. So lumber is like one of the major input costs into the house. Um, and when you see like framing lumber running up to 1700 per thousand, that obviously adds so much cost into that house that it now probability in that house, for especially like a small-time builder, that really zaps like a lot of that profit right out of the game. And then when you take on consideration of the length of like how long it takes to get windows and doors and siding and then labor costs that also goes into it, it makes it very difficult to make these profitable for, for a small town builder or any kind of builder for that matter. So now we have lumber sitting at six hundred thousand. So you think, okay, well this is gonna be a great time for the builders to get in. But what's give some context there. What what is the normal price of lumber? Okay. Or, so, I mean, you know, if you go back 10, 15 years of just for inflation. Right. So like, okay, two by four, eight standard embedders is like the most common board that you would find at a lumber yard. And typically this board would sell for around $3, say $3.50. At the height of the lumber market, when it got up to $1,700, that $3 two by four was $13.50. So you're talking, what, three, four times the price of what it would normally be. How fast did it change? And that changed over the course of what, maybe a year and a half? I mean, it didn't even really take that long to get there. And, you know, when it's, when you think about like how quickly it moved the other way too, because it went from 1700 down to 400 in the course of just a matter of three months, it was a very quick drop. Why did the price come down? Well, that's really the interesting story because as the lumber prices were running up to 1700 per thousand, it was really easy to look at the Federal Reserve money printer and say that's the reason right there. It going, Money printers going crazy, and lumber's running up to seventeen hundred thousand. Really, don't need to look any further than that. But had you been following my channel back throughout two thousand eighteen, there was a huge issue taking place up in the British Columbia area, where they were in salvage mode due to a bug infestation that had taken place, and so they were cutting a lot of trees and shipping those down into the United States. Well, when that salvage mode came to an end. You can imagine that once the prices moved up and the lumber prices came down, those mills up there in the British Columbia area were suffering from that big time. And that really started causing a mill curtailment and inventory depletion all throughout 2019. So throughout all through 2019, we were seeing the lumber mill curtailments and inventory slowdowns, and then come 2020, COVID hit, bang, right? Even more mill curtailments, even more inventory shutdowns, and then people get a stimulus check. They're locked down at home, and what do they want? They want to block out the neighbor with the fence. They want a new deck. They want, you know, raised garden beds. They want to remodel the house. They start spending all this money, and they zap all the rest of the inventory out of the market. So now, the mills start firing it up, and they trying to fill that supply chain is very difficult. You gotta imagine, you gotta fill up all the, you gotta fill up the mill, you gotta fill up the distribution hubs, you gotta fill up all the rails, you gotta fill up the retail. And that took forever to do. So when that stuff was in short supply, trying to fill that distribution network up, it's running up to 1,700 per thousand because a builder who is in need of lumber will pay any price for that stuff to get his project moving, and that's exactly what happened. So as soon as that lumber supply filled, bang, it was all back down to 400 per thousand again, and then what do we see? Mills start going into curtailment right in the middle of the summer, it was last July. So here we are moving into Again, it ran up to, what, 1,200 per thousand just a few months ago. And then same thing, we had the mills come into an issue. Now this time it wasn't quite the same thing, 
what they had was a trucking issue that started taking place and these mills were backed up with lumber. They literally had no place to go with this stuff. And every, as they were producing it, you couldn't get anywhere to like store it. They had to go into curtailments again. So this is really what we're experiencing right now is that there's a backup of the mills due to that trucking shortage that had been taking place over the last few months. It's starting to free up a little bit, but those mills are in curtailment right now. And you're gonna find that at some point that lumber is gonna find its way into the distribution network again there's going to be a production gap, and you're going to see prices shoot back up, probably towards the end of summer. So that's probably what you're looking for, that information, when that lumber is going to be moving back up. Now, I can't predict the future on when that's actually going to happen, but it just seems to me that that production lag that's taking place right now is going to impact the price probably, again, towards the end of summer, maybe just the beginning of winter. Of winter. Now you know where the hedge fund Guys, follow Simon, right? <laughs> Sorry, guys, unbelievable. No, 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 unbelievable insights. But I think the main takeaway there is when we're trying to figure out what, what's going to happen with commodity prices, uh, we tend to get focused on either the supply side or the demand side, and we have to pay very close attention to both because what you're talking about, you're just going back and forth, just casually, between the supply side, what's happening with the mills, what's happening with the diesel, what's happening with the truckers. And you're talking about the demand side, what's happening with stimulus checks, and are we getting aggregate demand increasing? And we saw that perfect storm that was leading up to it. You saw the supply side going down, and you saw that the demand side go up, and that's why prices go from $3 to $13 very, very quickly. Yeah, do you guys have anything to add there? Any more questions? Hello. Oh, I think they're, yeah. Uh, buy, buy Bitcoin, buy wood right away. Uh, so, so maybe this is obvious, but I think this might help that it's not just new home construction. When we see the component price of any real estate, the land plus the materials plus the labor plus developer profit, that's what kind of sets the tone for the market. So congratulations, your homes are all worth more even though they were built five or 10 or 20 years ago. That's only because the new builder adding inventory, whether it's retail or office or residential, has to come in at that price. There's only been a few times in my investing career where we've seen property consistently below replacement costs. We talked about this, Jason and I on the show, right when we felt it happening, like, wow, look, I can buy a, a used house for a lot less than a developer could deliver it. So I want to get Jason's take on this because in light of your presentation and where things are going, and now when, when prices are up or change, it affects not just the new builds, but the existing inventory as well. Yeah, uh, when we did that show a long time ago, uh, one, of the, one of the strategies we talked about uh, is something I called regression to replacement costs. And maybe that'll come again, I don't know, probably not soon, but <laughs> the idea being that when a price of wood is worth what a price of wood costs again, right? Uh, or any component, uh, any input in that house, and you could buy below the cost of the materials. Remember, as real estate investors, when we buy improved property, we're buying two things. We're buying the land, and we're buying improved housing, apartment complex sitting on the land. And we're really commodities investors. And that's why I call it packaged commodities investing. I did a video with George a long time ago about just that topic. And so if you look at the uh, value of all of those commodities, all of those ingredients that go into a house, you know that that sets a floor on potential losses, right? So that protects your downside risk. And 
that's one of the great things about it. The other thing I think to keep in mind, to your point, is that uh, it, you know real estate's a very low-tech thing. There's not likely to be any big disruptive technology that's going to come in and change construction uh, in any major way. I know we see these 3D printed houses on YouTube and stuff, and let me tell you, all of that's bullshit. Okay, and here's why. <laughs> here's why. I hired a consultant about a year and a half ago, a 3D printed home expert. I was going to start a 3D printing construction company. We were looking at buying the big 3D printers. They cost about $400,000 for you know, one that will build you a house. We looked at that project in Austin. We looked at these deals in China. And all of this stuff, we went down this rabbit hole so deeply I couldn't believe it. And you know what, what they're quoting when they say, oh, these $10,000 houses in Austin is a shell without HVAC, without electrical, without cabinets, without faucets, without plumbing. You know, it, it's just not there yet. And, and, there, and then the cost of concrete goes up, and you know, most of the 3D printed houses are made of concrete, some are composite materials. And it, there's just no big disruptive technology. I had a guest on my show uh, about a year and a half ago uh, from John Burns Real Estate Consulting that you've probably heard of. And he said, the biggest uh, disruptive technology that's happened in construction in the last 100 years is the nail gun. <laughs> it's a low-tech industry, and that's what's good about it. Like, if we all understand that, unless we're gonna start living in force fields, right, or something like that, you know, it's just not likely to be disrupted in any major way. So you buy commodities, and if you had to buy commodities the normal way, you'd go to the commodities exchange. And you couldn't get 30-year fixed-rate financing, even though you think the interest rate's too high now. I get that you think that, right? Everybody's wishing they would've, should've, could've, would've. Um, but you, you get these commodities on 30-year fixed rate debt, and then you delegate the responsibility of the repayment of that debt to someone called a tenant. You can't do that buying on the, on the commodities exchange. That's why income property is so unique. And so uh, it just offers a, a ton of benefits because it's, it's just a very special asset class. Kenny, what's the, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was gonna ask him actually about disruptive construction. If you, if well, we, we've had people try it, you know, where they built the tilt up walls with all the stuff in it, big factories. Um, you know, I personally know somebody who raised a lot of money to do that. And um, that company's no longer around. So it's been tried a lot, you know, think of Lincoln Logs or, you know, the, you know, everything components all in the wall system, and boom, 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 boom. Uh, we've, 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 we've had people try with those uh, railroad cars, you know, stacking it, all that kind of stuff. And, and, but at the end of the day, to your point, but the land plus construction plus the labor plus all the stuff that goes into it, it we haven't seen really anything yet. Uh, what are your build costs right now per square foot, roughly? Yeah, so we were talking about that last night. So it varies obviously based on where it is and how high it is and whether, um, you know, you've got the, the parking actually drives a lot of the issues, you know, with the, the parking structure itself. So uh, just a traditional surface park, which means you pull up to it like you would like maybe a hotel, that'd be the lowest. Um, you're, you're in the over $200 a foot, uh, could be closer to 250 a foot. 
just depending on the type of construction. That's just for the construction, that didn't include the land or the yeah, permits or right, anything like yeah. that. Yeah, just and I was talking to some people last night uh, where uh, it, it's interesting how different that can be in, in markets. You know, some markets are less. How much of that is it, what percentage of that 250 is a component of labor? Boy, I, I'm not sure, I'd be guessing, but, um, you know, fair amount. You know, it's all baked into like a lumber yeah, right. framing contract, so um, you know, it's hard to know. Yeah, so do you, I would wonder if you see that price per square foot that Kenny's paying for new build, do you see that going up or down in the next year? Well, honestly, I see it going up. I mean, the cost of materials is going to continue to go up. Maybe lumber might go down, but doors, windows, siding, all that other stuff does not seem to be moving the other way. And the supply of it seems to be limited as far as being able to, like, I'm in a, I'm in a very hard, I mean, you know, out in Astoria, Oregon, it's not like, you know, being in the city where you're closer to the distribution hub. So when I'm ordering siding and stuff, I may end up having to wait a little bit longer than, say, Maybe somebody that Ken is dealing with, he might get it a lot quicker than I will. But still, when you think about it, like I just think about the small time builder, because there's the guys who are building most of the houses, and if they have a hard time getting this stuff, it seems to me that it's pushing like completion times out ever farther. So I think this is a real important part, the completion times are getting pushed. And yes. because I was talking to a lender this week on my on my podcast. So what he said is on the single family side, he said, we, we loaned somebody money, say nine months ago or a year ago to build a home. And it's not done because um, of, the, of the, they can't get things, can't get labor and all that kind of stuff. So now they're past that loan. So, so now he has to requal, this is what he said, he has to requalify the person who's actually building the house because now rates have gone up. So now we have this interest rate risk. You know, maybe when he started a year ago or she started a year ago, it might have been in the threes. But now it could potentially be in the fives or sixes. Um, and so he, I said, wow, are they losing their homes? He said there's 12 to 15 people behind them that will buy them in a minute. At the moment, that's the way it is. So they're having to requal. Yeah, so let's think this through because on the supply side, it's pretty obvious where things are going. And that means supply going lower, unless I think we get some event where the 10-year treasury goes up to five or six percent, and uh, you know, Blackstone just completely unloads all the properties they have to parlay that money in back into treasuries as a risk reward. But then again, I don't know how much additional uh, inventory that adds to the, the market. It's not that much in the overall scheme. Yeah, I think it could be short term though, because you correct me if I'm wrong. But usually there's about 500,000 homes for sale across the United States. Well, there's 418,000 right now. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so close, close to 500,000. Yeah. So they have like 80,000, although the overall housing stock, that doesn't move the needle. If they had to liquidate that quickly, relative to the housing stock that's typically for sale, that would definitely fluct, you know, make price fluctuate there. But outside of that, we can safely assume that the probability is very high that we continue to have a supply side issue. Uh, another thing that I might think go into that, if we do go into recession, people might be prompted to sell, to take out that equity because they need that to pay the bills. But again, I think we can, can set that aside for the moment. Uh, so then we have to look at the demand side of the equation. Because even if we have low supply, if, if we go through a 1930s type of process, that you're gonna have so much demand destruction that that could potentially bring down nominal prices. 
So I'd like to hear everyone's opinion, uh, starting with Robert, on the demand side of the equation over the next year, two years, and do you see that potentially being impacted to the point of nominal prices coming down, understanding that we'll most likely continue to have the supply side issue? Yeah, so demand is obviously created by human beings needing to interact with real estate. I don't see a technology, to Jason's point, that is going to eliminate us having to sleep under a roof, right? So uh, there is always a level of demand. But interest rates are going to affect that. Uh, family formation uh, affects all of that. And then lifestyle, right? I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and when we saw the market get tight, people would move an hour away or you know, to Gilroy or down to Salinas or to Hollister, you know, the area, and they'd have to drive further. Well, then you have gas, you know, and, 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 and all those things. But big picture is there is a housing shortage. You know, Jason has touched on this a lot. Kenny's talked about this in his podcast. Now, this last week, we spent some time with Danielle DiMartino Booth, who uh, was inside the Fed for nine years. She watches housing a lot. Her belief is that NAR will tell you, the National Association of Realtors, that there's seven million units that are in that are needed, and she believes it's more like a million. And she has very sound reasoning on this, which the which has to do with demographics. There's demand for housing, but did those folks earn enough money to have that demand? Not everybody uh, is going to buy a home, that's for sure, but they are going to have a financial relationship with their residential property if they're renting from Kenny. So the demand is there, but there's a side of demand that. Most people don't talk about. We talk about supply and demand. There's also something called capacity to pay. And that really is baked into demand. But I might want to move or, or live in a neighborhood near my job. But if I don't have the capacity to pay, I simply can't. As values are being forced up because of component pricing and as interest rates are, are up, I think that's going to cool down demand as much as anything else. I'll live in mom's basement another year because I can't afford the mortgage. Yeah, I was going to ask that question. Do you see that the release valve, because you're just talking about rents going up, you're talking about prices just continue to go up. Well, at a certain point of incomes aren't going up. you got a big problem there. So do you see the release valve being people just moving in and there's being more people per square foot like we see in Europe or like I see all the time in South America? And then that would be a solution to the supply side because you go from 350 million people needing a house, if they're just basically just uh, you know cutting that in half, now all of a sudden it's just 150 million people, same amount of housing stock, if they're just moving in together, let's say. Couch surfing is coming back. Yeah, yeah. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, so a couple things. Uh, from the Seattle area, so I had a friend that um, wanted to move in the, in the neighborhood that that he was in, him and his wife, and, and their two kids. And I, I think his house was like 1.2 million or something. And so he was looking at a lateral move. That was it. I want to try to find something in the price point that I'm at. He told me that his mortgage would have went from 4,000 a month to seven. So he had, he had a lot of equity in his house that he wanted, but he decided not to move because the payment was going to be so much. And I think that interest, that's what's happening. Um, you know, I call it trapped equity. So there's a tremendous amount of trapped equity. The good news is, and I mean this, this time around, a lot of people have a lot of equity. That is good, really, truly good. Uh, nobody, protective equity. Nobody wants that anybody lose their home. And, and, um, and 
but they can't necessarily access it because the cash out refinance or, or lateral move into, into the exact same place. Um, now, you know, obviously they have multiple choices other than just moving within the neighborhood, but I think that's a big deal, and that is going to reduce the amount of normal listings. And in my opinion, you know, it's funny, Phoenix, I'm, I don't know if it's the like public uh, news reporter came out and said, oh my God, the housing in Phoenix out is not good. It's, the, the listings have tripled. Well, we went from a 10-day supply to a 30-day supply. Well, the triple. So you gotta be careful of the narrative. What's normal is four to six months. That's normal, depending on the market. So, you know, it's typical. What's typical and what's healthy is about four months on the market, and there's just the right amount of, of price resistance. So 30 days is still not healthy, um, and uh, you know, it's better than 10. So, so I think that you're going to see a, a low number of listings moving forward as a result. And, and when you say healthy, you mean it still indicates a lack of supply. Lack of supply. Not healthy for buyers. Yes, right. yes, correct, yes. Yeah, thank you, Jason. You know, it's, it's funny that um, when we talk about the real estate market, we always think it's a good market when prices are going up. Right, and George said something interesting, you know, I was on his show recently and he said, it's funny how they think it's great if asset prices are appreciating like crazy, and it's bad if consumer prices are going up. Remember you said that? That was a really good point, you know? And that's kind of how it is with the real estate market, and as investors, I think we need to kind of just remember that sometimes we're in a market that's a capital appreciation market. And we all love that because it's this huge, like, gains that we make, and you know, the wealth effect, we all feel richer, we do my refi through you die strategy, and it's awesome. But a lot of times, we're just milking our properties and our portfolio for yield, okay? And that's really investing. Investing is not speculation. And so, uh, the, the beautiful thing about it is that as long as the population is not in decline, and there's not too much doubling up, as George was talking about, people just move from the the renter pool to the buyer pool, or they move from the buyer pool to the renter pool, right? It's the same number of people and the same number of units needed. Now, the doubling up does diminish, it does decrease demand a little bit. That's a little bit of demand destruction. But overall, doubling up is not that big an impact. It's an impact, which is not huge. And so, uh, that's the thing. We just adjust our strategy based on what's going on in the world. And I say there's tons of new renters moving into the market, and the rents are still lagging the prices by two to three years. Rents are still rising, and they've got a long way to rise, and this guy is benefiting huge from that. <laughs> Probably. Are, are you guys worried about uh, rent control? Yeah, 100%. It's already popping up. I didn't get a chance to talk about it, but it's, uh, we're, we're seeing it. You know, we're seeing uh, homelessness is a real thing, um, and, you know, and affordability is a real thing. And so each state and city is handling it a little bit differently. Uh, Oregon, of course, passed the rent control for the whole state, or to California. And, and, and so, if, so what, what's happening is they're, they're hedging their, the, the investor on the income, and then they're doing what they want on the expenses. So 
you know, and so people are again driving. You know, I always say, you know, money money goes where it's treated best. And so, you know, like uh, I was talking to a lender from Mercadia, one of the top guys out of San Francisco, and he said, we're just staying away from the coasts. And he said, and St. Paul. I go, why St. Paul? He's like, they passed the three percent rent cap, um, and which means that you can only raise your rents three percent. By the way, it actually. It's not healthy what's going on for renters. You know, it's 10, 15, 20% increase. It's not healthy. It's so, not healthy for the market. I mean, I'm gonna ask you a rhetorical question. How do you hedge that? I'm sure the answer is you go to Texas or uh, Florida and invest there, but everyone's doing that. Yeah. So that's driving up prices. Driving up prices in the markets. Yeah. And then you're, 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 you're chasing it. You're chasing the deal. You got FOMO. So how, how do you guys, Kind of reconcile that. Go ahead. So, <laughs> it is part of it is market selection, but the great thing about being a real estate investor is you're never forced to invest in any market. I always say live where you want to live, invest where the numbers make sense. It's not just about ROI though, it's also many states are landlord friendly, many states are tenant friendly. I try to stay out of the places that are tenant friendly. We saw in the last two years how governments local and national and state react to something that happens, right? You can go back now and you can see which governors behave certain ways, and, and, and now you go back and you make assumptions about markets that will be safe, secure markets where there is demand, right? Jason, you've been picking markets like this for a long time that are what we would call recession resistant, not recession proof, but markets where good people get up every day, go to work for somebody else, you don't supervise them, the biggest chunk of their of their payment goes to you to pay your mortgage payment. And, and that's still happening. They work the first 10 to 12 days, maybe 15 days of every month to pay you. Like what else, what other asset does that? No, nothing, no. Hey, one other thing I wanted to say about your labor comment is the, and don't quote me on the number because I'm gonna get it wrong, but just in concept, you get the idea. The average construction worker is like 54 years old. Can you believe that? Yeah. I mean, it's, there is a giant labor shortage, so that's you, driving the trades, we have a real problem with trades right now, yeah. I think you could see that turn on a dime, though. I, I do, I've been saying that. I think we could go from a labor shortage to a labor surplus very quickly, because you gotta ask yourself, why did those people retire? And then, uh, you know, you go back, and okay, this is why they retired. It, are we gonna see, a reverse wealth, wealth effect, and because if they retire because of the wealth effect, and that's the Fed's main objective right now, you know, going back to my presentation. So it, it's a very uh, tumultuous uh, situation, to say the least. Yeah, so we've only got about five minutes left. I'd love for you to kind of tell the story of how we met uh, originally on, on YouTube, because yeah. that's, you know, we've all, I think the main theme for today is just building community, network, and just uh, finding people that are like-minded, that you can trust, that value the same things you value. And so I think this will kind of emphasize yeah. why you should take action there. So, you know, as I do my research, like a lot of you do, you know, I have my list of uh, followers, or not list of followers, but subscribe people that I, uh, that I follow. And uh, one day as I'm going through my list of uh, YouTubers, George Gammon pops up on my feed. And I noticed that he was just started. He had like three videos out, had maybe 300 subscribers at the time. No, 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 no. 
Yeah, I know, I know, no, no, but no, I probably had, oh my gosh, probably at least 50 or 60 videos. At that time? Oh yeah, 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 I probably had 50 videos and maybe 200 subscribers. Because yeah, I was, 30 of those at the beginning, I was only getting maybe 10 or 20 views per, per video. And then and, and 90% of those were my mom and my sister. <laughs> so I was wrong on how many. But I just remember I was like, okay, wow, this guy is just super amazing. He's got this whiteboard. He's doing so good with his like information and stuff. And so I, one day I give him a shout out on my channel. And I'm like, hey guys, you know, if there is anybody you got to follow, it's this guy George Gamble. It's like really off the charts here. He hardly has any subscribers, so go and subscribe to his channel and show him some love. And I guess he must have got a lot of attention because he got a hold of me and he says, "Man, thank you so much. Come on my show and do an interview with me." And uh, yeah, we've been close ever since. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I invited him to speak at the last Rebel Capitals live. Invited him here, and it's been a fantastic relationship. When I first started uh, my YouTube channel, uh, actually, it was. It was a few months before that. Uh, I was listening to Macro Voices. You guys listen to Macro Voices? Yes, of course, it's fantastic. And I remember Patrick and Eric were talking about doing a live event, and they said, well, logistically, we don't know if we're gonna do it because we, we don't have expertise there. So I was able to get a hold of Eric and, and uh, say, listen, if you guys wanna do a live event, I'll produce it for you. Because I used to produce events with five, 6,000 people as a child's play. He said, well, George, we appreciate that, but we couldn't afford your rate. I said, oh yeah, you can, because the rate's free. And he says, well, let's, let's do it. So I produced their entire event, and I was just the one kind of in the background, just making sure logistics happen, and I was able to meet Brent and Jeff Snyder and you know some of the people that are here today. So when I started that YouTube channel, I started my show, The Rebel Capitalist Show, one of the first people that I reached out to on Twitter was Brent Johnson. I DM'd him, I said, you know, Brent, I don't, I don't know if you remember me, but uh, you know, we met here. He said, sure, George, I'll come on. And it just parlayed from one person to the next person to the next person. And I was just, which was strange for me because a lot of times I always kind of had that lone wolf uh, approach as an entrepreneur prior to, to 2007, 2008. And so uh, from there, I expanded the, the channel and then I uh, had someone that I DM'd on Twitter, Kiyosaki, we hit it off, had dinner, and then he said, oh, you gotta meet Kenny. Kenny and I hit it off, went skiing, and then we met up uh, in West Palm, and then Jason and I, we all went out, and then we formed uh, the collective, which you guys see right out here, and then I started doing events. When I did events, I just emailed every one and DM'd people that I had met through the process of the show, and providing value and just building and building that network. And I can tell you, not only does that help you uh, be more anti-fragile in a time of a fourth turning, which I think we're going into, but it also improves your life to a degree which I cannot explain. My life right now is unbelievable. I mean, think about this. I, just two years ago I was doing nothing and now I have the opportunity to meet all of you amazing people right here and sit up on stage with these incredible individuals. And none of that would have been possible if I wouldn't have continued to try to grow that network and, and build the community and the tribe. And I'm sure you guys have kind of origin stories that, that would rival that. And 
don't know if you guys want to share something like that quickly. Well, you know, they say your network is your net worth, and that's yeah. really good to say. It's it makes you anti-fragile, like Willow, and uh, that network is so important because every you know we all have resources, and when we share those resources, it just becomes really valuable. Uh, that that the information, the knowledge, the resources, the experiences, and the friendships. That's what life's all about, right? And it's just, it's the most important thing in life. And uh, that, that's what's so important about networking, coming to conferences like this. If you can afford it, joining a mastermind group like the Collective, great, great resources. If you notice, all the resources in life really ultimately come from other people. Yeah, and, and what's awesome, all of you have taken the first step in coming here to this event and, and starting to network and grow your own community. I think, you know, the speakers are phenomenal, but I think that's the real value, is just being able to meet other people that are like-minded, that share the same values. And Kenny, do you have anything to add there? Yeah, sure. So I, I started early in my career at a, at a group called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. That was my first exposure to a network or a tribe. And it really changed the way I did business. And then I went into YPO, which I'm still in. And um, and I'll tell you, that peer-to-peer -peer network kind of led us to the collective. Because you know what I found, certainly, was I, I think, even though I'm known for a multifamily and known you know, for what my business has done for the last 20 years, and Jason's known and, and George is known as an example, we're still really confused about other stuff, just like everyone. Really, like on, on a number of levels. And so the, the power of the collective, the power of the mastermind that we put together, we only had three meetings so far, I think it's been wonderful, that, um, is the group itself. It's the sitting down with the group and, and, and you know, it, it's not, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's both ways. And, and I, I gotta tell you, that for me, uh, I was looking for a network and a tribe moving forward into this uncertainty. Um, and that's it for me. You know, there's some, uh, to dovetail on what Kenny said, there's some, there's something you want next, right? There's some next level thing for you. It's different for everybody. And it always feels like before you do it, there's some sort of shroud of mystery around it, right? Like you don't know how to do it, or it's just not quite real to you yet. Just like whatever you've achieved now is now totally real because you've done it, right? And when I, I was an EO member too, and I remember going to my first lunch, and uh, it just kind of, you know, I had a small business and I was struggling, and um, you know, I, I then met other entrepreneurs that were doing bigger things that were ahead of me in the, in the journey, right? And it was always some like out there thing. But then when I got to know these people and became friends with them, I thought, in a way, you know, that's just like a normal person. You know, I could do that too. And and that's what happens when you network with people and you hang around with them. The, that next level thing you want just becomes so real because instead of reading about it in a book or hearing about it from someone on stage, you know, this is like a person you know that you're hanging out with, that you're just friends with, and you realize that's just a normal person. I could do that. Your subconscious mind, something kind of flips. And that's the power of a network of the tribe. That's why I always tell people start their own YouTube channel. Because trust me, if I can do it, any of you sitting here 
can do it. Yeah, I totally agree. You don't even need a studio. You can do it in your car. Yeah, you can do it in your car. But you got to get some fuzzy dice, though, right? Yeah, you got to have fuzzy dice. That's the secret. All right, so uh, do you want to, Robert, tell everyone about tonight's cocktail party? And I think the three of us are going to go back to our booth out there and answer any questions that you guys have, probably for the next hour yep. or so. So if you guys have any questions about real estate or anything we talk about today or anything we'll talk about tomorrow, just meet us out at that booth. And then you want to tell them about the cocktail party tonight? Absolutely. First of all, how about half the panel, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, and it's working now. The money gun is working. Wow. Uh, tonight at 7 o'clock, we're going to be right out here in the foyer. So uh, come on down, hang out, wear your Rebel Capitalist t-shirt. And uh, we have a great, great opportunity tonight to buy me a beer. That's going to be awesome for you. Uh, but from 7 till, uh, I think last call was at 10 o'clock.